Good afternoon. This is Max Barnett. Let's give it up for Max. You can do better than that. Let's go. And this is Max's story. To kind of help get the story going, we're going to ask him a few questions along the way. So without further ado, we're just going to get right into the story of Max Barnett. Max, what did God do in your life to get you on this journey of disciple-making, to give you a vision for making disciples? Well, let me say, first of all, I, I didn't plan this thing on my life. I, I was told earlier I would speak 30 minutes on discipleship, and he would speak 30 minutes, so that's somebody else's fault that you're in during this, okay? <clears throat> when I was at Texas A&M, I began, like many of you, trying to walk with the Lord. And during that time... Uh, I began to see the importance of the scriptures. I made some decisions along that time about uh, getting into the Word. And uh, one of the things I'd challenge you to do while you're in college, it's the greatest time in the world to begin to get the Word of God into your life. I remember as I, <clears throat> being about 500 miles away from home. I didn't have a car and money, and most of the guys in the dorm where I live would leave on weekends to go date. And so I was left alone uh, there in my dorm. And so I began to spend time. There's a get-in Bible in my room. And I began to read that. And I remember one night, as I did every Saturday night in high school, I'd go to the movies. And one night, I, one Saturday night, I was walking across the campus to go to a movie. And I stopped under a tree and thought, you know, I really hadn't had the time and the Word I need and I probably ought to go back to the dorm and just spend the time with the Lord. Now, <clears throat> I stood there for a while. I really wanted to go to the movie, but I thought, you know, I need to get the time with the Lord. So I finally went back to my dorm and spent a couple hours with the Lord that night. And two hours later, I wouldn't have taken anything in the world for the decision I'd made. Now, not that it's wrong to go to a movie or anything like that, but at that time, I really needed to get to know God. And so I began to do that, began to memorize verses. And I've often said I wouldn't take a million dollars for the verses I just memorized in college because God really began to work in my life during that time. I wanted to witness, but I really didn't know how. But uh, one night I was praying and I said, Lord, uh, I'd plan to be a veterinarian. I said, when I get out and get my veterinary hospital off, I'm going to try to make enough money to personally send a missionary. And I thought God would really be excited about that. And uh, I sensed he wasn't. And I kept praying that night, and the Lord began to impress on me, I want you to be a witness on this campus now. And that scared me, but I knew that I needed to be obedient to the Lord, so I picked up a little New Testament. And uh, a Sunday school teacher had given me when I was about nine years of age and had us write four verses on the flyleaf. Said, someday you may want to use these to witness. So I started down the hall and I saw a fellow in the, sitting at his desk and studying, had his door open. And so I looked at him for a moment and I was afraid to witness to him. So I, walked, I prayed and I walked on down the hall and I read the bulletin board, came back and looked at him again and Went down to the other end of the hall, and I got a drink. 
And then I read the bulletin board and I got a drink. And I don't know how many times I walked up and down in front of his room before I finally just knocked on his door cell, said, I'm an Aggie here like you are. I just want to share what Christ has done for me. And that was a beginning for me. Boy came in next door that gone to the BSU with me, and one day he said, Max, uh, you know I've never led anybody to the Lord. I said, you haven't? Kind of like I was an old pro at it or something, and I said, would you like to? And he said, yes, and I said, I would too. So why don't we go witness every day till somebody becomes a Christian, and let's start tonight. And so he said, well, you know, I got a paper due tomorrow. And I said, well, I got a test, but the dorms are full of people. It won't take long. So we started going. It wasn't long till somebody accepted the Lord. And it wasn't long somebody else accepted the Lord. And for a period of two years, just a little group of us, we saw two people a week accept the Lord for an average of about a year and a half. And that was the beginning. We began to try to uh, help people to grow. And... Uh, One day uh, we had a retreat and we began to pray about, we were getting many invitations to go to other campuses and tell what had happened at A&M. And so we prayed and felt two people ought to drop out of school for a year and just travel and share the story. So my roommate and I, as we prayed in a group, felt that we ought to drop out of school and just travel. A man in Houston bought us a used car and we took off. And uh, God did some great work uh, as we'd go to a campus, speak on witnessing, take students out to witness. We saw Lord God do some amazing things during that time. Now, there's a lot we didn't know, but we knew just to go out, take students out, and talk to their friends. And we saw quite a number of people accept the Lord. I remember one day we were at the University of Houston. A girl came to us and said, I have this Jewish friend. Would you go talk to him? We said, sure. So we went over to the dorm. We were knocking on the door. And he came in down to the other end of the hall, and we were knocking on his door. And he said, uh, what do you want? And we told him we were Aggies. And because uh, a friend of his had mentioned his name, we wanted to come share what Christ had done for us. Could we do that? And he said, oh, I've got to get a shower. I've got to go somewhere. I don't have time. He said, well, if you'll hurry. So we quickly shared our testimony. He didn't seem the least bit interested. We were walking down the hall, and I said to my roommate, you know, as far as I can tell, we did absolutely no good. He did not seem interested at all. But, you know, we tried, and it's always right to try. So we prayed and went on our way. A few years later, I was at seminary, and a girl came and said, uh, were you at First Baptist in Dallas tonight. And I said, no, I haven't been at another church. She said, there's a Jewish evangelist that Dr. Criswell had had to come speak. And uh, it's one reason you want to stay up on your quiet time. You don't want to ever run out of juice. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. that do any better? Give it up for Tim. She said... Uh, this evangelist was speaking. He said a number of years ago he came in from a dorm and two Aggies were knocking on his door. And uh, he said, they tried to witness to me and he said, I, I wasn't really interested. I wasn't even nice to them. But when they left, it bothered me. And it kept bothering me. And he went to a friend 
told him what had happened, and that friend led him to the Lord. Now he goes all over and speaks. I began to see the tremendous power of God that he uses a word, and that's why I began to memorize it. You know, no one that I ever know of has started memorizing verses and thought he had quit has ever taken a long walk and taken a group of his verses with him and reviewed those and ever quit. Because as I do that, and God speaks to me, the Word has meant so much. And I could tell you other stories, but I want to share one other thing that I guess set me on a, <clears throat> on a journey of making disciples. I was at a conference. Now, well, I was at a campus, and I had spoken to a group of students And we'd gone out that week and seen several people accept the Lord. So the last night I was on that campus, I met with about five guys that had shown so much interest. And so we met till about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I had to catch a bus the next morning at 5 to go to Ridgecrest for a student conference. And I said to those guys, you know, you may be interested in walking with the Lord while I'm here. But if you don't get into the Word of God, you don't begin to memorize verses, you're not going to make it. So we talked about that. I called a bus the next day, and I went to Ridgecrest, North Carolina. There's a man there that uh, said, you know, there's a man here from the Billy Graham team. He's going to be speaking to some of our students tonight. Would you like to hear him there this afternoon? I said, sure. So I went over to that apartment. There are about five or six of us. And he started telling us about Dawson Trotman, the man who started the Billy Graham follow-up team, started the Navigators and he said, you know, Dawson was the kind of guy, and I'd said to those fellows just before I'd left, I said, you know, this summer I have to work. I know you have to work. Why don't we just move to some city? We'll rent a house. We'll live together. We'll work during the day. At night, we'll read the Bible. We'll pray. We'll memorize verses. We'll go witness. I'll teach you everything I know about the Lord. And so he said Dawson Trotman was the kind of guy that'd have fellows to live with him. He said they'd work during the day and at night they'd read the Bible and pray, memorize verses, and he'd teach them everything he knew. It's almost as if someone had had a tape recorder in that room. Well, all of a sudden, for me, the fog just lifted, and I knew what I needed to give the rest of my life to, to discipling people. So I met with that man the next morning. I went back to Texas A&M, A&M praying that God would give me men who really meant business. I went to a conference that summer, and a man said, while you're here this week, why don't you ask God to give you a promise for your life? And so I went out that afternoon, I prayed, and I said, God, I don't want to just do this because somebody thinks it's a nice idea, but if you really have something for my life, I'd like to know what it is. And I thought, he said, find a promise, and I thought, well, I know where there's some promises, I'll just go get one. And... uh, As I thought about it, I thought, no, that wouldn't be God giving me a promise. So I was reading in the book of Isaiah. So I'd read a while and I'd pray a while. And it seemed like the Lord said to me, Max, what do you want for your life? You're asking me for a promise. What do you want? I said, God, I want you to give me men. And since I was at A&M, I thought in terms of men, God, give me men that really mean business with you. I thought, well, not everybody's a man. God, give me people. And I prayed that, and I said, God, give me men, give me people who will really walk with you, give their lives to walking with you and making disciples. The very next verse I read was Isaiah 43, 4. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honorable. 
and I have loved you, therefore will I give men for you and people for your life. And I knew that's what I needed to give my life to. So I went back to Texas A&M, began to pray God would give me men. That's what I've continued to pray, and God has continued to be faithful to do that through the years. We'd like to show just a little clip of a video at this time, please. Let it roll. He was slow. Never got out of the blocks. You don't want that to happen to you. What does it mean for you? If we could go ahead and cut that part out, please. I guess they're going to keep going. Those guys back on the soundboard are wild people. What does it mean to you to raise up multiplying disciple makers? What do you mean by those words? You know, one of the sad things in Christianity today, when you look at the condition of the church today and see that the divorce rate's about the same among Christians as it is non-Christian. I think the greatest single failing of the church is we have not discipled the new convert. And I believe that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, I think I've heard many messages on it. I don't think I've ever heard anybody preach what it really says. Jesus told us to go and make disciples. You're to baptize them and you're to teach them all I commanded you. There are many things he commanded us, but what had he just in that breath commanded them to do? To make disciples. So he says when you reach the new convert, you are to teach him all I commanded you. I just finished commanding you to make disciples. You teach him to make new, make disciples. And so we need to start with a new Christian immediately, getting him to pray for his non-Christian friends. And so we start immediately helping him come to the point where he can reach someone else. You know, the way all of you got here is a very simple process called physical multiplication. That's the way everyone got here. Now, there's a process that would work faster if we'd use it in its spiritual multiplication where we reach a new person and we stick with that new person till they can walk with God, know how to witness, know how to help someone else to grow and get them to the point where God can use them to reproduce in the lives of others. And so that's what I want to see. I'm not interested in just adding other people to the mass of a herd of Christians we have that are 
that don't do very much and just add to the group doesn't help. But how do we help people once they become Christians, mature, grow to the point where they can help other people become Christians, help them grow, and that's exactly what God intended. How does a person develop a vision for being a disciple maker for their life? I think, first of all, it starts with evangelism, that you need to begin to get a heart for other people. There are people all over that do not know Christ. There are people all around you. And I memorized one thing that helped me was Luke 16, 19 through 31, where Jesus tells the man the story about the rich man and Lazarus and how the lost... The rich man died, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And to realize, you know, sometimes you've been sick, you always hope that someday you'll be better. Let me tell you, when a person goes to hell, it's forever. And there are people all around you that someday would have given anything in the world if you'd have shared with them. And so we want to develop a heart to help other people come to know Christ. And you're going to have to get into the Word of God, spend time with Him, Growing, becoming the person God wants you to be. As you do that, beginning to reach out to others. And I think that's the way you begin to develop a heart for others. And I'd seen people that had come to know the Lord in the church. Seen people even that I'd witnessed to. And you see them a year later when I first started. And they were no different. And you know, for a person to become a Christian and six months later be living like he's always lived... Either he didn't come to know the Lord or he certainly didn't get the help that he needed. And so I think the thing that we need to do is just realize that's what Jesus asked us to do. And you look at what Jesus said right before he left the Great Commission in the other incident in Acts 1-8. Acts and Jesus, it's interesting, he told the disciples, I want you to be witnessing to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, and then said bye I mean, he just left. He didn't stay around to tell them how to do it because they knew how to do it. They had watched his life for about two and a half or three years. They knew how to do it. And you know, it's amazing to me how in the Christian world we pay some attention to what Jesus said but pay absolutely no attention to how he lived. And the way Jesus lived, he got close enough to few enough people and spent hours and hours with those people until they became more and more transformed into his image. And so that's the way I think you begin to get a vision for disciple-making is you begin to spend time in the Word, see how Jesus lived, and realize that that's what he wants you to do. What are tools that are in your life, Max, that have helped you be effective in disciple-making, some of the spiritual tools that you use? Well, and you know, I, I just turned 73 last week. And some people ask me, how do you stay excited? I tell you what, I'm as excited today about disciple making as from the first day I started. And I think the number one thing is my devotional life. And I want to share this with you. I think one of the reasons, one of the greatest tools you have for your life is every day you live getting time in the Word of God and prayer. And I think one of the reasons some people's devotional life is so dull is they read a passage, they close their Bible, and then they pray. Now, in Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians 10.11 both say, 
whatever was written, it's talking about what was written in the Bible, written in the Old Testament, whatever was written aforetime was written for our learning. And so I'm reading along, and I no longer just read this and think, well, I learned a little bit about the history of Israel today. But for example, I'm reading along, and one day I come to the story of David and Saul, and they're coming in from battle. And the women come out singing a song. Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed what? Ten thousand. Now, what did Saul think about that little tune? (laughs) He didn't like it. Why? Because greater things were accredited to David than to him. Now, the Bible says that was written down for my learning. So I stop at that point. I don't want to know just a little bit more about the history of Israel. That's part of it. But I pray over that and I think, now God, what do you want me to learn? And I think, Lord, they're going to be young guys and gals that will come along and they'll do a better job than I've done. Just like David did a better job than Saul. And God, I don't want to be like Saul. I don't want to be jealous of him. God, I want to give my life to helping young men, and I hope they do a better job than I've done. Now, all through the Bible, as I'm reading along, and there may be an example. Here's something that someone did, and I say, maybe it was wrong, and I say, God, I don't want to be like that. Or here's an example. The army's coming. The children of Israel don't know what to do, and they say, oh, God, Second Chronicles 20, verse 12. We have no might against this great company that comes against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And many times I come in life, I don't know what to do, but I say, God, I don't know what to do in this situation, but I want you to know I'm trusting you and looking to you. Now, if you'll do that, I think your devotional life will come alive and your quiet time. The thing that I think keeps me motivated more than any other thing is my personal time with the Lord. And I guard that. You know, I try not to ever, ever, ever let a day in my life go by that I do not spend time in the Word. Now, I try to do it first thing in the morning. If I can't do it then, when is the first available time when I can choose? Now, sometimes I come in in the morning, there's a sports page, I'm very interested in OU football, and I think, I've got a choice to, to make. I can go to my room. I mean, I can go have my quiet time. Later I can read the paper. And I make choices. Now, I want to say something here because to some of you this may sound legalistic. There's a vast difference between legalism and discipline. Legalism is trying to earn favor with God. You don't have to earn favor with God. You already have it. That's why Jesus, that's what you have as a result of Jesus' death on the cross. God loves you. You're fully accepted. You need to understand who you are in Christ. But discipline is different. Discipline is doing what you ought to do because you ought to do it. You know, and I find that I have never, I live at OU and Brett's at Nebraska and, and, you know, we take our football seriously there. I have never heard anyone say Bob Stoops is a legalist. But those football players, they come out every day, and if you don't come out to practice, you're not on the team. And yet in the Christian life, any time we ever get a little bit disciplined, somebody begins to holler legalism. 
I don't memorize my verses because God's going to zap me if I don't. I do it because I want to be as equipped as I can to be used of God. So I would say those things of the, the devotional life, Scripture memory, reviewing verses, those types of things keep me are something that really, as much as anything else, keeps me motivated. And there's going to be times in your life that the motivation is going to have to come from within. Accountability from others can help. You know, David came back from battle one time and the enemy had come in and taken all the women and children while he had led the men out to another fight. First Samuel 30, verse 6 said, But David, when he came back, David was greatly discouraged because the men spoke of stoning him because they had come in and taken all the men and, I mean, all the women and the children. But it said, but David encouraged himself and the Lord is God. So I try every day I left to encourage myself and the Lord. If I can't get to the time with the Lord and it's late at night, I do it. Satan often says, well, you're too tired, you won't get anything out of it. Well, one thing you need to learn, Satan is a liar. Some of the best time I've ever had with the Lord in my life is when I was too tired. So those things, I think, help to keep me motivated. And then I try to stay around people of like heart. I go to conferences, I listen to tapes, I get around people of like heart. Where does something like man-to-man fit in? to what you see as the role or a tool of disciple-making? Well, I see in the New Testament three things. There's a large group meetings. A large group is very good for teaching, for worship. If we had ten more people here this week than we have, when Dr. Ken Hemphill stood to speak this morning, it would not have taken away from his effectiveness. The large group is very good for motivation. It's good for teaching. You also see in the New Testament small groups. Small groups are much better for learning because you can ask questions. You can share. You know, I've often thought Jesus got more time with the twelve in about two and a half years than a pastor of a church would in 50 years with an average member of his church because he spent time with them. And in the small group, you get to ask questions, you get to share, you get to contribute, you learn from others. But I think one of the things that's been so lost in our day is the person-to-person, man-to-man. I don't think you're going to build strong disciple-makers without some man-to-man, person-to-person. Because people have individual needs. They can learn certain things in a large group. They can learn certain things in small groups. But they need someone to help them individually and personally. And that's what I think is so lacking in the church today. We don't do that unless a person comes up and asks a question. But can you imagine Jesus walking from Jerusalem down to Emmaus or walking here or there and it's seven miles? If you started walking, say with Mike today, and there were 12 of you and you walking seven miles somewhere, you know, you talk, you get in little groups, and then John gets back here, and he thumps Peter on the ear, and they're wrestling around, and then they catch up, and then they sit down and talk a while. You know, when Judas got ready to betray Jesus, he didn't have a hard time finding him, I don't think. After John 17, in that prayer where Jesus had prayed, and John 18, it said, He went over the Kidron Valley to where there was a garden, and to which he entered, 
And Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus often went there with his disciples. Jesus got a lot of individual, personal time with people. You know, a number of years ago, I called a pastor to invite him to go on our spring break trip. We happened to go to Glen Erie, big conference ground, and happened to be the headquarters of the Navigators, and we planned our own program there. And he said, oh, you mean the Navigator headquarters? And he said, yes. I said, yes. And he said, I said, do you know about the Navigators? He said, well, I sure do. He said, they led me to the Lord when I was in the Navy. And I was on this ship, and a guy met with me every week, and he said, then... When I was being transferred off that ship, and he found out about it, I'd be gone in a couple of weeks. He met with me every day. He said, I wouldn't be where I am today if somebody hadn't helped me personally. And then he made an interesting statement. He said, but when I became a pastor, I found out that wouldn't work. I said, what do you mean it wouldn't work? He said, well, I was talking to the WMU president, and I said, I'm going to meet with these three guys. She said, you can't show favorites. You've got to treat everybody alike. No pastor treats everybody alike. He gets more time, it may be with a guy because he's chairman of the deacons or whatever, but everybody gets more time with somebody than someone else. I said, do you know Luke 22, 31 and 32? He said, no, I don't think so. I said, well, let me share it with you. Jesus was speaking to Simon. And he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you. And in the Greek is plural. He's desired to have all of you disciples that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, and this time it's in the singular. I have prayed especially for you, Peter. And when you get straightened out, you strengthen the brethren. Now, why didn't Jesus treat them all alike? You know who he spent the most time with that we, we see in the Scriptures? Peter, James, and John. Okay? Now, did he love all of them? Yes. Did he pray for all of them? Yes. But you spend time with individuals. And so we got together, and every Thursday morning that pastor would come by my office. Because on Thursday morning, after he saw that it was okay, I don't care if he pastored church with 6,000. You can still spend time with three or four guys. And you can meet with them and help them so they can help you with the others. He would come by my office every Thursday morning after a meeting with a young lawyer. And he said, you know, Max, after I begin to meet with this guy, I still do all I've ever done. I preach. I do all this. But every Thursday morning we have breakfast together and I build into his life. He said, you know, I can't beat him to any need in this church. He said, I'm sitting up the other morning. I'm, I'm going to preach. And I look out there and I see this young couple. And I know they're having problems in their marriage. He thinks, I need to get by to see him. This guy comes up right after church and he said, you know what, young couple in our church? I knew they were having problems in their marriage and I was praying Friday night and I went over and visited with them. You know, I think they're going to make it. He said, another day I look out and I see this lady and she's brought her husband. He's a Christian. She's a Christian, but he's not. I think I need to go witness to him. This guy comes up after church and said, you know this lady? Been bringing her lost husband to church. Said, I went over the other night and witnessed to him. Said, I think he's about ready to become a Christian. He said, Max, it's the beatingest thing I ever saw. Let me tell you, one of the greatest things you'll do is invest your life in another individual. In the little video that we showed earlier, Bob Anderson said you mentored him. Dave said Bob mentored him. 
And I think we would agree that disciple-making involves that, but it's more than that, isn't it, Max? Right. What do we mean in contrasting that to mentorship? What's the difference between making a disciple and mentoring a person? I think there's a difference. I use a difference, and you'll hear this a lot, people using mentoring for discipleship. I don't think they're the same. Mentoring, I think, like, for example, you can come up to Ken Hemphill and ask him a question, and he can mentor you in an area. When you get married, you're out in a church, you see a couple, and they've got two little kids, they're doing a great job with their kids, you have children, you can go to them and say, hey, tell me how you raise your family. They can mentor you in a certain area. Ken Humphreys is going to be here, has one of the greatest ministries I know as a layman. He may go to New York and speak to a group of businessmen, and this man come up and say, what do you do with your employees? And he said, well, one thing I do for my employees, any, any employee I have, if they have a child, I will send that child to a Christian camp and pay for it myself. He mentors that guy and helps him in the area. Maybe he gives the guy his phone number. Six months later, the guy calls him, got another problem. He mentors him. Disciple making is different in that you meet with a person consistently over a period of time. That's the difference I see. We're constantly mentoring people. People come up, they ask a question, you help them. I remember talking to a seminary professor one time. He said, Max, I just don't see man-to-man the type. I said, it's amazing to me you do it all the time. A student will come up after class and ask you a question. You'll stand there for 30 minutes if you have. But see, you don't intentionally see it to look for people into whose life you can build. He said, you know, I never thought of that. And so that's the difference I see. Discipling is meeting with this person, trying to help them get to the point, deal with problems in their life, help them begin to get to the point where they don't need you. That's the way you raise children. You try to train them. Someday you let them go. You always love them. You always pray for them. You know, I want to give tribute to some guys that, can testify, you don't have to know much to disciple people. You really don't. When I came to the University of Oklahoma, I began to pray God would give me some guys. And I met some guys already in the VSU, Bob Anderson, Brett Yon, at a retreat I went to where his dad was pastor. I met Jack Owens. These guys have now been on their campus for 38 years. I didn't know much about it. Larry Woods joined us. He was led to the Lord as a result of Brett's life. He joined us. Now he's at Michigan State. I didn't know much about it, but we used to go out on weekends to this little retreat thing, and and uh, we'd read the Bible and pray, and, and, and we'd listen to tapes. I knew how to... We had a little tape recorder, and we'd get a message. Somebody had something to say, and I knew how to push the button, and I'd let them hear great speakers... First budget I ever looked at at our BSU, we had $100 a year, the entire year for program. But we had tremendous speakers all the time because I knew how to push a button on a tape recorder. (laughs) And we met together and we talked and we prayed. I didn't know much about it. I, I still face things I don't know much about. But you share your life with people. And we pray together. We talk together. We learn. We grow and they'll, people that you help. And that's one of the great joys of my life is to see guys like that and see what they've been doing all these years.
Would you explain 2 Timothy 2.2? Well, it says, Now, uh, the things which you've heard of me among many witnesses. Now, that doesn't mean that he just heard it with one person. One of the things I, I did, a lot of times I would meet sometime with two or three guys at a time. Like I told the guys, when Brett, Jan, and Bob and these guys were there, I had a little window in my office, and I may be sitting here, I always sit where I can see that window, and I may be meeting with Brett, Jan, and I tell Bob, if you happen to come into BSU, show your face at that window, and if it's something we're talking about that's very personal, I'll wave you away. But if it's not, I'll invite you in. And many times we would do that because here were guys at the same place. They were friends even before I ever came on the scene. So, but the things you've heard of me among many witnesses, you commit to faithful men. And that's what we don't do. We just commit everything to everybody. There are certain things that you can preach on and things, but you need to find people who are faithful and they will... you. Teach them so they can pass it on to others. Now, a lot of people, if you just walk around looking for a faithful man, you're probably going to wait for a long time. I've found that you have to begin to build faithfulness into people's lives. But I'm always, I want to always be looking for people that I think are interested. And like you may find someone in your BSU, your church, or you meet someone, and you think, I think this young person, here's a freshman in my BSU group. Maybe I can meet with them and help them. But you don't know if they're interested or not. So you might just say, hey, I'd like to have a coat with you sometime, get to know you a little better. And so you begin to find out about them. You might say, you know something that's really helped me grow. You might talk with them a little bit about your devotional life. If you sense they're interested, you might say, hey, there's something else I'd like to share with you if you have time sometime. And they say, oh, yeah. Well, could we meet? Is this a good time next week? Could we meet? If they're really responding, then you can even say, hey, would you like to get together this time every week this semester? And then you begin to help them. If I meet with a person, and sometimes I've seen a person come to the BSU, I think this person really has possibilities, I think. And then I may meet with them the first time. If I begin to share with them, I sense they're not interested. I just say, hey, it's been good to meet you. Hope you'll keep coming to our meetings. If I can ever help you, let, let me know. But you don't just give your life to unfaithful people. You love them. You pray for them. And that's why, as someone said, you help many. You train a few. You know, love the world. Help many. Train a few. You should never meet anyone and have to decide if you're going to love them. Jesus said even love your enemies. Love everybody. Help many. That's why you want to do the best job of speaking, teaching, everything like that you can, serving. But then you're looking for a few that are willing to pay the price. And if they don't begin to pick up on the disciplines and begin to discipline themselves, eventually they will not make it. You're not going to walk with God without some discipline. Have you tried to raise up people so they'll be like you, Max? No. See, now that's one of the criticisms. Somebody say, well, they become just like you. Well, in the first place, I don't want people just spending time with me. That's why when they're with me, here's somebody that's got more to offer in a certain area than I do, and I want to expose them to them. 
See, for example, I took a man to a conference one one time and because this man had a lot more to offer than I do. And so I take students to people that have more to offer than I have to offer. If you only spend time with a person, you don't want them to get any time with anybody but you. That's selfishness. And they're even going to sin like you sin. And so I want to always be exposing them to others. That's the great value of the church. Other people using their gifts and contributing. And so you want other people contributing to their life as, as well as just you. But I want to make all the impact I can in a person's life, but I do want them to be exposed. And if you know Brett Yon and Bob Anderson and Jack Owens and Larry Woods and Mike Story and John Kelsey and people like that, they are as different today as they were the day I met them. They are not like me. Fact is, they don't want to be like me in a lot of ways. Okay? So don't worry about people just becoming like you. When we pray, we don't pray to Max Barnett. We pray to God. And you're constantly trying to push them towards God. Get them depending on God. And Paul, when you think about it, Paul was never anywhere over a couple of years. And then he's gone. And you get other people. Now you'll see again and again in the Scriptures. You see this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I'm follower of the Lord. You see it in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Philippians 4.9. 2 Thessalonians 3.7-9. through 9. Follow me, follow me, follow me. But the whole time they're following me, we're, we're witnessing, we're keeping the emphasis on God, we're praying to God, we're memorizing God's Word, not my Word. And the day comes... I leave or they graduate and they go right on following the Lord. But first of all, they're going to follow you before they ever follow the Lord. They do not see Jesus walking around the campus. They're going to first begin to follow you. The whole time they're following you, you're following the Lord. The day comes in which as a result of being with you, they know what to do. They know that you go to this book to find answers. And this is what you depend on. And you depend upon the Spirit of God. You put your trust in God. And the day comes, you leave, and they go right on walking with the Lord. After that, like with these guys, I may see them once every six months. We're still friends, but they don't have to call me to know what to do. They are trusting the Lord. If I could stand here today and tell you everything you ought to do the rest of your life, why would you need God? See, I want to point you to God. You get to know God. You follow God. You meet with God. That's what we're trying to get people to do. Is that the explanation for discipleship is as much caught as it is taught? That's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons. Spend time with people. You know, uh, Larry Woods reminded me of a story I hadn't even thought about. But one year we were going on a trip. Uh, and when it came time to leave, I believe we were lacking $35, having enough to pay for the charter buses and everything, but we didn't have to pay till we got back. And so some of the guys said, well, why don't we just take up a collection on the bus and we'll have it all? And I don't know why, but I just felt like, no, let's don't do that. We had been praying. They had met, we would meet together Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for two hours each day to pray 
pray for the money and pray for that trip. And so I said, no, guys, let's don't do that. We asked God to provide. I want you to see God provide. Well, when we got off the trip, we walked into my office. There's two letters on my desk. We opened them. One had $25. The other one had $10. Larry Woods just reminded me recently. He said, I'll never forget that as long as I live. They saw God answer. And spending time with people. You know, I love being at, I was up at University of Colorado the other night. Bobby Pruitt, every Friday night, they have people over there. That night they fed 71 people. Bobby says, we just do that every Friday night. We've done it for five years. You talk about people that share their life with people. And you get around people. That's why it's great to take them on trips. That's one of the reasons for this conference. I thought it is sad to me that Southern Baptists, and I talked to leaders for years trying to get them to sponsor something over Christmas. Because if you're going to disciple people, you've got to get into their schedule. And so you have a month, almost a month off or three weeks off for Christmas. Why not have a conference where you can get to side, you can get some help in your walk with God? That's the reason this conference. That's the reason you're here. That's what this conference is about, trying to help you. Now, when you begin to, that's one of the reasons, and I hope some of you will give thought to going into student work. You know, it'd be one of the greatest privileges of your life if God let, I am amazed at why, it's seminary. It, <clears throat> you know, it's Southwestern Seminary, one of the largest seminaries in the world. You know how many people register every year coming in that seminary to planning to go into student work? Two. I think, where is our head? <laughs> you know, there are not very many places that God has put so many young men and women on so few acres as a college campus. And they're young, which means that they haven't been divorced twice. And they're teachable. They're in a learning situation. They've got time. It's rare to find a college student that you can't get sometime in his schedule, at least an hour or so. How many laymen have off three months for summer? How many laymen have off at least three weeks for Christmas? How many of them can just pick up and go on a mission trip? And I think if we want to see disciples to reach the nation, you're the age to do it. Right now is the time for you to begin to memorize verses. It's easier for you. Now, for example... I was in a seminar day, one of the young guys was 20 years of age. Let's suppose that he and I decide to memorize the same verse today. He's 20, I'm 73. What's the difference you see in that? If we memorize the same verse, the Holy Spirit has a tool to work in his life for 53 years if he lives as long as I am more than I have. And if you want to make your life count, I'm amazed that people don't ever think about working on a college campus. So anyway, if God lets you do that, it's the greatest prayer. I wouldn't want to trade places with any pastor in the whole wide world. (laughs) This guy here pastored for years and years and years. And at the end, he recently decided I'd rather be on a college campus where young people want to know what I got to say 
than having to deal with some of the things I've had to deal with. And I'm not against the pastor. Don't misunderstand me. And I don't offend any of you preachers. God bless you. But I'm glad you're where you are and I'm where I am. Well, we want to do something right now. The legitimacy of what Max has been talking about. You've heard Max's story. You've heard and seen his passion. You've heard of Max. We want to ask if just to have a visual demonstration because a picture is worth a thousand words. If you were discipled by Max Barnett, would you stand up? If you were discipled by Max Barnett, would you stand up? There's a few of you in here. I also could stand, but I'm going to remain seated at this point. If you were discipled by one of these men standing up, would you stand up? Or one of these ladies standing up, would you stand up? If you were discipled by someone you see standing, stand up. If you were discipled by some of those that are standing, would you stand up? That is the power of multiplication, the power of discipleship. And how many of you now are being affected by someone you see standing? They are having influence in your life to help you walk with Christ. If that's true, would you stand up? I think the the yeas have it. That is the power of making disciples. That's the power of discipleship. Mike, tell them a little of your story. My name is Mike Story. <laughs> I, I was sent in 1976 to a conference in Glorado, New Mexico that turned out to be the wrong conference, but the greatest wrong conference I'd ever experienced in my life. I was sent by Colorado to go to an evangelism conference that turned out to be a discipleship conference led by this man. And for the first time in my life, I heard something that made sense. I'd heard of Max for years, and none of it was really good most of the time. I heard he didn't play by the rules. He wasn't a team player. He didn't run the program. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. But I kept meeting students from the University of Oklahoma, and they were different than most of the students I knew. They had quiet times. They memorized scripture. They had a sense of discipline, and I wanted to meet this man. But what I really appreciated was that he didn't point me to himself. He pointed me to the Word of God and pointed me to Christ, gave me some tools that have radically changed and transformed my life. Uh, I don't know how many years I have left. I probably won't live as long as Max did. That's what I kind of figure sometimes. But I do know this, that God has given me the privilege of going to a college campus after 30 years in the church to invest in the most teachable, pliable, moldable, fat people on the planet that's faithful, available, and teachable. And I am just praising God that I have that opportunity to do that, to raise up as many disciples as I can, as fast as I can, to help fulfill the Great Commission of Christ. And I'm indebted to this man for being available to God to make it possible. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Max, anything else you'd like to say before we end this session? Well, I just want to commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And the thing I would say while you're in college, stay close to your director and pay the price that you're paying, like to go to conferences, to do everything you can to grow, to become the men and women of God, I would highly recommend you at least one time during your college career go overseas one summer.
You know, the best way I know to do that is through focus. You all go through it. They all, as a result of going through focus, you're going through the International Mission Board. You have their insurance and all of those things. But focus stands for for friends of college and university students. John Brooks started that because I remember one year he came back from the mission field and he said, Max, you know, we're not getting enough people overseas as Southern Baptist college students. That year, as a result of the whole Southern Baptist Convention, we had 200 college students overseas. So he said, let's start something to just help. So we... He called, and we did, Brett and Bob and guys like this, started the thing. Now, at first, we sent them to the Missionary Learning Center for training. And after we got about 40, it cost so much, we said, well, why don't you just bring them? And even though John said we send them to the Missionary Learning Center, the Southern Baptist House, for a long weekend, we don't get enough training there. So we have another week of training. The training is absolutely phenomenal. We've been through it. And by the way, there's a director's track if you've never been. They have a booth out here. Talk to someone about it. And you can come and observe the training. The students are put into teams. Like if you apply just to the International Mission Board to go overseas to China, they may take one student from Kentucky, two from Carolina, one from Texas. You go there. You're not a team. This way, you... You come to the training, those that are going to a certain place, you come for training, your leaders with you, you spend a week together, you build a team, and then you go together. They never send you anyone, any place but what somebody from Focus has been there. We know there's a good missionary for you to be under who has a heart for discipleship. And so I would encourage you. Now, another thing, there'll be some projects in the summer that we call Project Impact. Last summer we had one in Denver uh, that Mike Story led. Uh, there was another two Joe out Ricks in California. Excuse me. Joe Ricks led Joe it. Ricks led it there last summer. Mike had led it. John uh, uh, Kelsey and others. We have these programs in different places where you go, you get a job, you work, you make some money, then at night you're in training. So you'll be hearing more about things like this. But why, and Harold Bullock is coming in to talk with you about what to do during your 20s. Give your 20s to training. So later in a week, you'll hear, have an opportunity to hear about some of those things. But now's the time. That's why I would say to you, right now, work hard on your scripture memory, your devotional life, learning to witness. Get with your director. Go to conferences. Do everything you can to grow so that when you get out in the world, you're going you can make disciples wherever God puts you. Let's give it up one more time for Max. Thank you, Max.